Well, good morning. We have uh, all had the experience, haven't we, of inputting that password into one of our devices only to hear that familiar bump, that sound, and the, the warning says, wrong password. Wrong password. You've entered the wrong password. Man, I thought for sure that's what it was. And so you try that second next best option. And again, that same warning, wrong password. And so you cycle through the three or four passwords that you tend to use for all of your accounts, even though you know you're not supposed to do that, right? And continue to see that same warning, wrong password each time until finally a different warning appears on your screen. And it says you've entered the wrong password too many times. You've been locked out of your device for 15 minutes. And you think 15 minutes, like I don't have 15 minutes. And as you continue to enter the wrong password, the device continues to add time to the penalty. 23 minutes. You've been locked out of your device for 37 minutes. In fact, I recently heard of a toddler that locked his own father out of his iPad for 46 years. 40, 46 years locked out of his iPad. I mean, can I suggest that when a toddler has the power to do anything that results in a 46-year penalty, like something's completely broken, right? But like we all, we get it, don't we? We understand the importance of these digital security measures, right? We understand the value in strong passwords and we get why we need two-step verification processes, right? We, we understand because we live in a world that is, is pretty crazy and, and our security sometimes can be at risk. In fact, um, the Harris Poll did a survey in 2018 and it, it found out that nearly 60 million Americans had been affected by identity theft. 60 million, that's a huge number. And just this week, we learned that 100 million credit card applications had been breached, exposing you know, hundreds of thousands of social security numbers. And so we recognize that, that verification is a big deal in our world. It's a big deal because we want to be able to operate with confidence as we move through life that what someone says is true of them is actually true of them. That who someone says they are is actually who they are, lest we be taken advantage of. And today we jump into a brand new series in the Bible book of 1 John, the New Testament book of 1 John. And the author is going to argue that as important as verification is when it comes to our you know, relationship with others or in the online world, for example, it's just as important when it comes to our relationship with God, his verification of us and our verification of, of him you know, how can we know that our faith is real? And how can we know that Jesus, the object of our faith, is real? Have you ever had those kinds of questions? I sure have. And I think the, the letter that we're going to be looking at will help provide us with confidence as we move forward in our life of faith. Well, I want to invite you now to go to this little New Testament book or letter known as 1 John, and you can find that on page 985 if you're using one of our Bibles today. And let me just take a moment to introduce myself. My name is Mark Nelson. I'm the campus pastor over at our Greece campus, and I do want to take a moment to welcome all of our campuses today, no matter where you're joining us from, Arondequoit, Webster, Henrietta, especially my people out at our Greece campus. Love you guys. You're the best. Uh, but we want to um, jump into this new series, and we want to mention that as we do, man, we're going to be walking through the chapter of this book one chapter per week. And so we're going to be parking it right there, 
right in each chapter. Today we'll be in chapter one. And we want to invite you to turn there in your own copy of scripture with us as we walk through these, these verses together. We also are excited that we're rolling out a podcast for this entire series. And so after each sermon, that'll become available during the week. And if you're interested in that, you can check the box, uh, the equip box on today's connection card. We hope that that can be helpful for you as well. We'll dig a little bit deeper into each of the subjects in those podcasts. Well, I want to help us get a little bit of context for this letter so that we can more fully understand it um, as we're in it for these five weeks. And based on the style of writing and on the themes of the letter, most scholars agree that 1 John was written by the disciple named John, who also wrote the Gospel of John, along with 2 and 3 John and Revelation. And if that's the case, then the words we're going to be focusing on in this series are actually the words of the disciple who was closest to Jesus. You could say we're going to be focusing on the words of Jesus' best friend on earth, his BFF, if you will. And so this is going to be a crazy personal firsthand account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And I think you're going to love the way that John writes because he uses very simple words, but very profound uh, concepts. And very dramatic contrasts like light and dark and love and hatred and life and death. And that makes this this letter a very dynamic one. And it's really good that it's dynamic too because John is actually writing here a letter of warning about some individuals that are claiming to be Christians, but they're beginning to introduce some false ideas into the church. You see, they're, they're beginning to look around at the culture around them and they're noticing the corrupt, evil culture, the sexual sin and the indulgence. And they've come to a conclusion that anything physical must be impure and that, that instead they're elevating sort of spiritual knowledge as this higher level of attainment in, in a form of what could be known as Gnosticism. And I apologize for introducing such a big word so early in the day, but we need to wrap our minds around what this word Gnosticism means. It's rooted in the word knowledge. And what was it that these, these, these people claiming to be Christians that, that embraced this, what was it that they believed? Well, they believed they'd been enlightened with a higher level of spiritual knowledge reserved for a select few. They also believed that, that physical matter, like the body, is evil, but spirit is essentially good. Now, don't miss this, because as a result of this idea, Gnostics believed that anything done in the body, even the grossest sin, had no real meaning since true life existed in the spirit realm only. In other words, sin all you want, it, it won't really affect your spirit as long as you've attained to this higher knowledge. Regarding Jesus, they believed that Jesus' physical body was not real, but only seemed to be real. After all, how could it be since matter was evil and Jesus was divine? And to all of this thinking, John is going to say, garbage. That's nonsense. And it's actually dangerous for Christians to to think that way. And I think by the time we're done with this chapter, hopefully we'll understand why that kind of thinking is so dangerous. But let's look together at verse 1. John writes these words, that which was from the beginning. That reminds us, doesn't it, of how John began his gospel, in the beginning was the word. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have, now notice all the the human senses here, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Again, as in his gospel, he refers to Jesus and the message of life that he brings as as the word And then verse 2, the life appeared, 
We have seen it and testified to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. So if the Christians receiving this letter are beginning to wrestle with whether or not Jesus was an actual person with a real physical body, John wants them to know the reality of Jesus has been verified. Like, the reality of Jesus has been verified. I'm telling you, he's saying, I'm a firsthand witness of the fact that it doesn't get any more real than Jesus. And this opposed that that Gnostic thinking. It opposed that Gnostic thinking that said, no, Jesus' physical body only seemed to be real. And John's saying, hey, look, (laughs) I was his best friend. You can't fool me. You might fool some other people, but you're not going to fool me. Like, we hung out together. We used to do cannonballs off the end of the dock, you know, and we would like uh, sing around the campfire at night. We even had this special handshake that was really cool. Like we hung out, we knew Jesus and he was as physical and as real as any, any other person on earth. The reality of Jesus has been verified. And this reality of Jesus' physical nature highlights a vital truth that Jesus is the God of both the spiritual and the physical don't think for a moment this morning that, that God is only concerned with so-called spiritual things, that he's uninvolved with physical things. No, he created both. He loves both. He has great interest in both. Don't think for a moment that your eating habits don't concern God or that your physical fitness is unimportant or that your sexual behavior is unrelated to your relationship with God. No, it all matters. God is meant to factor into every part of your life. But John also describes Jesus in this section as the eternal life. And that's because he wasn't only physical, but he was also spiritual. He was also divine. He was with God and he's appeared to us, John writes. And then we come to verses 3 and 4. We read, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. And John wants us to know that deep unity with God and with others who know him leads to a joyous life. I would say it this way, that embracing Jesus results in deep unity that brings joy. It it does. It it, it relates, uh, it uh, leads to deep unity. And you know, you can experience fellowship and deep unity around a lot of things, can't you? You can, you know, experience that, that unity around a, a shared interest or hobby, right? Let me hear you, Bill's Nation. Come on. I expected it to be, I expected a stronger response. Uh, you, could, you could experience unity around a, a cause that's very important, like, like a cure for cancer, for example. You can experience unity in other sources, but John wants us to know that there's something special about Christian unity, that it leads to unparalleled joy, that it completes joy, John says. And then we come to verse 5, which I'm going to call the climax of the entire passage, because here we read, this, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. So essentially saying Jesus' life um, proclaims this essential message. Here it is. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God is light, and in him, no darkness whatsoever. No darkness at all. John uses this simple but vivid contrast to describe God. All light, no darkness. 
And don't you know that throughout time, light and darkness have been used as a metaphor for good and evil, and this is clearly how John is intending to use it here. And we all get, don't we, how generally good and helpful and beneficial it is to have light available to us? And we all understand, too, inherently how, uh, you know, how unbeneficial, non-beneficial, so how dangerous even it can be to have darkness surround us, to be kind of left in the dark. We get that. And when I was about 17 years old, I borrowed my mom's car. Um, she had given me a curfew, and I realized that as I was out, um, time had gotten away from me, and I'd blown right past um, right past curfew. And so I knew I was in trouble, but I figured if I hurried home, then I could at least lessen the consequences a little bit. And so I kind of tore off toward home as quickly as I felt safe to do. And uh, the problem was it was already after dark and I was out in the middle of nowhere. There wasn't a street light to be seen. Um, and I was on this really windy path, this road through like mountain passes and um, near ravines and stuff like that. And there were guardrails and it was kind of dangerous, but I was kind of going as quickly as I thought I could. The, all, the other problem is it was also raining. And so the roads were a little slick. And as I came around one corner and then the other, I uh, felt my tires go, my passenger side tires kind of came off the road surface and onto some loose gravel. And I began to fishtail a little bit. But in my attempt to correct, I overcorrected, and then I ended up going right around in a circle. And the next thing I know, bam, I'm hitting a guardrail. I careened off a guardrail and sort of came to rest, straddled across both lanes of traffic. And there I was. Again, I was really far out of town, out in the middle of nowhere. Not, nobody around, no light around whatsoever other than my headlights. And as I sat there, I wasn't so much panicked or, or worried as I was ticked. I was really ticked at myself because I had just made a bad situation even worse, right? I had just made, you know, the consequences of being out past curfew now even a whole lot worse because I just added a new feature to my mom's car. Yeah. And so, man, I was mad. And without thinking, I ripped the keys out of the ignition and I opened my car door. And I stood up and I, in anger, threw my car keys down at the surface of the road and they smashed and went in all directions. And then I thought, mm, that might not have been the smartest idea. Because now here I am, I'm out in the middle of complete darkness. Um, I've got no light. I, I don't have a way to start this car. It's not running and it's sitting across both lanes of traffic. What am I going to do? And I began to panic a little bit. The only light I had available to me was the flashlight on my cell phone. No, no, this was 1989, son. There were no cell phones. And so I had no light. I had no light available to me. So the only light I actually did have was the very dim dome light on my car that was shining through the open car door. And I got down on my hands and knees on the wet road surface and began to run my hands across the road surface. And just in front of me, I noticed a very dim glare. And I reached out grabbed that object, and lo and behold, it was the only key I needed. It was the ignition key. And I threw it in the car ignition, tore out of there, and headed for home, only to explain to my parents how their car had this new feature, and they graciously, lovingly allowed me to pay to have it fixed. Um, but that story illustrates, obviously, not only how foolish I was as a teenager, but also, more importantly, like the importance of light, that that whole situation would have been a whole lot easier in the daylight. That light provides something useful, doesn't it? It provides, well, clarity. It reveals what's there. It reveals what is true. Consequently, it enables good decision-making for us. Provides confidence. 
to move forward leads to understanding or what we could call enlightenment. These are all benefits of light. And John's saying God is light. And so if you're connected to God, you're going to experience all these benefits. And these Gnostics, they think they have the market cornered on enlightenment. Well, guess what? John is saying God, he doesn't just have light. He is light. He defines light. He's the source of light itself. You think you're enlightened? God is light. And if light and darkness is a metaphor for good and evil, then John is simply describing God here to be pure good, 100% good, no darkness at all, no sin, no evil. And as a result, it is he and only he who has the authority to establish what's right in our world. God is light, so he defines right. He's light. He defines right. He determines what's good and right in our world. And maybe this is why Dr. Tony Evans once wrote that the more people marginalize the true God of the Bible, the more chaotic things become. Well, that makes sense, right? Because darkness produces chaos, but God's light produces order and understanding. And what we're going to discover, and I think what John is going to emphasize as our personal takeaway this morning, as we read the rest of this chapter, is this, that God's children reflect his light. If we're his children, we'll reflect his light. We'll reflect that very purity and goodness and righteousness that emanates from his being. And John is going to end up beating these Gnostics at their own game. Because remember, they argued that our behaviors really don't matter. That really all that matters is that we attain this so-called higher knowledge. But John's going to argue that moving closer toward the God of light actually doesn't make us less concerned with our behaviors actually makes us more concerned with them. And so, you know, if all of this is true about who Jesus is, that he is the visible display of God's light as he lived among us, then if you claim to be his follower this morning, it'll change how you live. And so how this is going to naturally show up in your life and in mine is going to be in how we think about sin. Because sin is simply the diminishing of God's light. It's like throwing shade, if you will, on God's light. It's opposing his righteous character. And so I think in the rest of this chapter, we're going to be introduced to three attitudes Christians should have about sin. And these three attitudes will end up verifying whether or not we really have fellowship with the God of light. And just a quick aside here, if you're here with us this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, then first of all, we're so thankful that you've come. We love having you here. And we need you, we need you to know that, that these three attitudes you're not responsible for, but you've come on a good Sunday because you get to see what's expected for those that claim to have fellowship with God. And so he says in verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and we do not live out the truth. But in contrast, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. The first attitude that I'll have about sin if I have true fellowship with God is this. I won't get cozy with it. I can't get cozy with it. I can't become comfortable in a pattern of sin. Notice John here is talking about a lifestyle of walking in the light or walking in darkness. That those who truly have fellowship with God simply aren't comfortable year after year living in a manner that they know doesn't reflect his character. John is saying that a person who has true friendship with God struggles with sin. They struggle against sin. They don't resign themselves to it. 
They hate sin because God hates sin. They hate sin because it caused Jesus painful death. And so they fight against developing sinful patterns and habits into their life. And I don't want to spend too much time here this morning because this is a theme that John is going to return to again and again in this letter. But I do want to point out that I think there's a key to not allowing yourself to get cozy with sin buried in the verses we just read. Verse 7 said, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Don't you know that deep unity with other Christians, it's something that we desire when we're walking in the light, but something we avoid when we're not? And perhaps the best strategy I know of to make sure that I don't get cozy with sin in my life is to open up my life to other followers of Jesus that can help me along the path. We have a strategy for that called community groups here at Northridge. Community groups. And we want to encourage every person to be a part of one. It's vital for your ability to stay in the light, not get cozy with sin. But here John is specifically warning about not allowing a pattern of sinful behavior to develop in your life. He's not talking about a momentary decision where we make a sinful choice. In fact, we all have those, right? Look what John says next, verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess or admit our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So the second attitude that I'll have about sin as a follower of Jesus is this. I have it. I have it. You have it. I have it. We all have it. And if you claim you don't have it, then John has some very strong words for you today. He says, you're lying. And worse yet, you're fooling yourself. And why would you do that? Why would you fool yourself? Because you're not fooling anyone else, clearly, right? I mean, your spouse knows you're a sinner. Your, your kids, they full well know it. Your, your you know, fellow uh, workmates, they know it. Your closest friends know it. God knows it. Everybody knows it. The secret's out. Why would you pretend? Why would you fool yourself? If you think somehow today that it's a badge of honor to claim that sin can't touch you or that you have victory so you don't need accountability, you don't need close Christian friendships, well, that's not a recipe for success. That's a recipe for failure. Get this, the mark of a true believer is not a claim of sinlessness, but of sinfulness. That's so vital that we understand. It's not a claim of sinlessness, that I'm perfect, but of sinfulness. Because in order to even qualify to be a follower of Jesus, it requires that you first admit your sinfulness, and then that you continue throughout your life aware of your propensity to sin. Prone to wander? Lord, I feel it. We feel that. We know that experience. Don't even think about denying it. No, he says this is actually good news for us. I want you to know this is actually good news because if you think you have to be a perfect person or that you have to be good enough before you become a follower of Jesus, think again. The Christian life begins with confession of sin and simply keeps a humble, contrite posture throughout life. Don't think about denying it. Instead, he says, no, confess it. Admit to your sin. He says, but if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive. You see, once you and I get to the point in life where we see ourselves honestly admitting our sin, it's at that point that hope can break through because we're then in a position to experience God's faithfulness as he forgives and purifies us. 
But we need to also this morning notice the first two verses of chapter 2 because it's in that section that John finishes up this response to sin. So verse 1 of chapter 2 says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, because that's totally going to happen, we have an advocate like a defense lawyer, an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Here's, what's John, here's what John is saying in relationship to our sin. I trust Jesus' sacrifice to cover all of it. That's the attitude that I must have when I come to the reality of my sinfulness. I trust Jesus' sacrifice to cover all of it. He is the perfect defense lawyer. When it comes to representing us before the Father, Jesus has never lost a case. He's perfect in that sense. If we have claimed faith in Jesus, if we've placed our faith in Jesus, that he really did die in our place, that his real physical body was put to death, that he shed real blood, that he rose physically from the dead so that he could, as a human being, uh, accomplish what no other sinful human being could ever accomplish, then his sacrifice atones, or another way of saying, covers over our sin in God's sight. And I want you to know that once that atonement has been applied to your account and my account, we are forgiven by God in full. It is finished. The price has been completely paid. Praise God. What an amazing mercy that is. But John says this atonement is for the sins of the whole world. Is he saying here that everyone in the world is automatically forgiven because of Jesus' sacrifice? Well, no, he's not saying that. In fact, we don't have time to dive deep into that subject, but this week we want to release an equip article to you that'll help dive a little deeper into that topic. But let me just say briefly that this atonement that John talks about specifically applies to those and only to those who have put their faith personally in Jesus. He's saying that there is a universal solution available for all those who embrace it. And our prayer this morning is that you have embraced that one and only solution for your sin. You can put your faith in Jesus Christ right now in this very moment and he will become your father and you will be his child. And if you are his child, then you're meant to reflect his light. And is it possible today that we haven't really changed as people too much in a couple thousand years? Is it possible that we still need this instruction on how to respond to sin just as much as those first readers needed it? Is it possible that, that people today still find it super difficult to resist the temptation to separate their lives, their Christian lives, from their everyday life? Is it possible that Gnosticism is still alive and well today? Well, let's test that a little bit. You might just be a modern-day Gnostic if... You might just be a modern-day Gnostic if during a church service, you tend to tune out of the message once that final program blank is filled in, because <laughs> it's all about the knowledge, right? You know, and just got to fill that in. I can be guilty of that one for sure. You might just be a modern-day Gnostic if you've begun to feel quite at peace with a behavior that Scripture clearly forbids. You might just be a modern-day Gnostic if you tend to excuse the fact that you watch and listen to unhelpful entertainment because, after all, it's just, quote-unquote, secular, even though you would, you would admit that it's not truly helpful for a Christ follower. Or on the flip side, you get bothered by the use of popular music or media during a church service, but you feel more than comfortable enjoying it at home. 
In fact, you might just be a modern-day Gnostic if you tend to separate your activities into religious and non-religious, physical and spiritual. You might just be a modern-day Gnostic if you're all about adding that, that next Bible study to your schedule, but you avoid at all costs living authentically in Christian community where you can be truly known. Hmm. One more, you might just be a modern-day Gnostic if you focus more on going to church rather than on being the church every moment of every day. Modern-day Gnosticism. We've got to be careful about puffing ourselves up with the knowledge of God while avoiding the implications of that knowledge in every area of our lives. True spiritual light is way more than knowledge. It's acting like Jesus. But what if instead of living like Gnostics, what if we lived like John is encouraging us to live? What if we practiced these three attitudes that John says should mark our lives? Would it begin to touch all the areas of our life that Gnostics imagined were disconnected from spiritual life? Or that he wrongly assumed that God was unconcerned with? God's children are meant to reflect his light. So how can we make sure that that light is seen in every area of our lives? Well, I want to recommend two action steps that I think can make a big dent in this for us. Two action steps. One is to get in a group. And this might sound familiar to you if you've been here at Northridge at all. Um, you might be tired of hearing it, and that's okay with us because we believe it's so vital that every person is in a group. And not just any group. Not just a group that will add more biblical knowledge to what you already have, but one that will challenge you to be authentic, to be known, to be exposed to the light of God's truth. And if you're already in a group, I want to thank you for doing that. It's super important. Make sure you recommit to exposing your life in a vulnerable and transparent way to the others in your group. It'll go a long way. If we can interest you in more information about group, you can check the box on today's connection card. We'd love to provide you with more information. The second step we can take is to practice the three attitudes. Practice these three attitudes. It's not enough just to know them. We need to rehearse them anytime we're tempted to go back to that sin, whatever that sin is. You're thinking of it right now, perhaps. That sin that you tend to come back to again and again, perhaps you've gotten a little bit cozy with it. We need to rehearse these three attitudes when it comes to that sin, no matter what that area of struggle is for you. Maybe it's your sexual behavior. Maybe it's unhelpful language of some kind. Perhaps it's an unhealthy habit, maybe something like drunkenness. Maybe it's arrogance, or my personal favorite, anxiety. Or maybe it's caring way too much about what somebody else thinks of you. Whatever the sin is that you struggle with, you need to rehearse, and I need to rehearse these attitudes in moments of temptation. And the first attitude I'm going to rehearse is that I won't get cozy with this sin. I'm not going to give myself over to it. I'm not going to say, that's just the way I am. I'm not going to mock God's grace by acting as if it doesn't matter. I'm not going to move in with that boyfriend or girlfriend because that would be to resign myself to temptation and to get cozy with sin. I'm not going to cozy up with gossip at the workplace because it just seems like that's the thing you do over lunch break. I won't continue to make excuses for why I buy things I can't afford. And I won't cozy up with my anxiety because it feels better to worry than it does to trust God in the moment. And then if I find in my life that I have gotten cozy with my sin, with a particular sin, guess what I need to do? I need to confess it. 
I need to confess that sin to God. And then I need to repent, turn from that sin, and make better choices on into the future. And the second attitude I'll have that I'll need to rehearse is that I have it. I have it. I'm not immune to failing. I'm not above it. So I have to stay on guard. I have to practice wise decision-making, depend on others to help me. I've got to put measures of accountability in place in my life. And you know what this attitude also gives us? It gives us empathy. It helps us to be able to have a humble attitude where I can come alongside someone else that's struggling with a sin and I don't think I'm above them. No, I'm struggling along with them. I have it. And then we'll have to go to that third and final attitude, which is so important, and that is that I'll remember that Jesus' sacrifice covers all of it. I'll remain grateful to God that that sin was covered by the amazing cross of Jesus, that it was for that very sin that I'm struggling with that Jesus went to the cross, that I'm completely forgiven and accepted 100% of the time, that my acceptance as his child doesn't depend on my performance or my behavior, that I am a redeemed child that God calls to live a certain way and by his grace, I'm gonna be eager to live that way. I think practicing, rehearsing these three attitudes will begin to forge new healthy patterns of thinking and of behaving. And if you and I would do that, it would cause us to reflect the God of light that we say we have fellowship with. God, God is light. And you and I, we need to reflect that light and by his grace, we'll do it. You pray with me this morning. Father, we... um, we have to admit that this just feels so beyond us. God, I, I confess that this seems unattainable. How can we approach the God of light? And yet, Lord, we, we know that, that you accept us fully in your son and what he did and what he accomplished. It's not based on our performance. And God, I'm so thankful that you, you've equipped me, you've equipped all of us as your followers to live in a way that would please you. You've given us your spirit. You've given us the power to make wise choices that would honor you. And so God, that is our prayer today that we would live that way. We pray it for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at all of our campuses uh, this morning, in this moment, we want to proclaim the gospel that we're so grateful that Jesus Uh, sacrifice covered over all of our sins that they've been paid for in full. That he who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for us in his body that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. And so let's stand together at all of our campuses and let's proclaim this together.